You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. This morning we, uh, we addressed something having to do with our identity as priests. We talked about the, the gift and the responsibility that it is to steward the presence of God. The, um, we talked about the, the sacrifice that will almost certainly be required of us if we're going to do that where we forsake other things in order to take care of this one thing. Um, I want to speak tonight about a related subject, but it's um, a little different because it, on the one hand, we, we are the priests of the Lord. On the other hand, we are the, the temple in which the priests do their work. And I've always, I mean, this is always quite a curiosity for me, like when you, when you think about uh, the theological implications of the new covenant, there's so many realities that you study in the Old Testament and you realize like the fulfillment of those realities are found in God's people. So if we're really going to get crazy tonight, we talk about how this, this, I mean, if we had like three hours, we talk about how this idea of priesthood, temple, and sacrifice weaves its way through Jesus, who is the great high priest. He is essentially the house of the Lord, the place where God's presence is manifest. And he is the sacrifice, the lamb. He's all of those things. But guys, on the other side of that, those realities are passed along to us. We are the priesthood. We are the temple of God now. And we are the sacrifices ourselves. Romans 12. We, we present our bodies as living sacrifices. So w- as priests, we present ourselves as sacrifices in the context of God's house, which is us. You guys tracking with me yet? I want to talk about the house of the Lord tonight, and I want to talk about our responsibility to build it. Okay? We're going to start in 2 Samuel 7. We're going to trek our way through a few passages of Scripture tonight. But I want to start here. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. This is a covenant that that God is making with David the king through the prophet Nathan. So you have an interesting moment in David's life when uh, Nathan speaks to him on behalf of the Lord. And, And prophetically, in verse 12, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, I want you to think about the language, because on the one hand, this is straightforward, ancient, Near Eastern dynasty language. Okay, you're going to die, but your son is going to reign after you. But there's something different about this promise The son of David in this text will build the Lord a house and the Lord will secure his dynasty permanently, forever. Now, in part, you have a kind of fulfillment in this with Solomon. If you remember in the Old Testament, when David dies, only then is the green light given for Solomon, his son, to build the Lord a house, a physical building, referred to throughout Scripture as the temple. That temple is constructed on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Um, David hires 
many, many labor, uh, Solomon hires many, many laborers to complete the project with the help of an architect from Tyre, a neighboring country. Cedars come down from Lebanon. It's, all, it's a massive undertaking. So on the one hand, Solomon, David's son, builds a house for the Lord. But the house doesn't last, okay? It takes about 300 and, uh, 313 years, um, and the house is destroyed. God's temple destroyed 587, 586 B.C., by the Babylonians. So the house doesn't last. It's rebuilt later, but it's kind of not up to snuff. I don't know if you remember this story in the Old Testament under Ezra and Nehemiah. When they're dedicating the, 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 the temple for the second time, some people are celebrating, other people are weeping because they remember how the first one looked. Just wasn't quite. And yet the Old Testament contains these promises. The glory of the latter house will exceed that of the former. Well, it wasn't in that construction project. Herod rebuilds the temple again. Um, right before Jesus' birth, he starts on that project. It takes him about 30 years, I think, to rebuild the temple, and he adds on a bunch of stuff. But again, you don't see a corresponding manifestation of glory in that edifice like you did when Solomon's temple was dedicated. So you really can't claim that either to fulfill that expectation. So there's a little bit of an issue with with thinking that Solomon fulfills this promise. There's another issue with thinking that Solomon fulfills the promise, and that's that the Lord says that his reign would last forever. David's heir, his reign would last forever. I'll establish his kingdom, his kingdom will last forever. Well, there's a problem there because Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever. He ruled for about 50 years, I think, 40, 50 years, and then he died. And then his heirs fought over the kingdom. And then the kingdom split in half. Okay, and so you can't, so here's the issue. There's a promise made. We're looking for a descendant of David who's gonna have a permanent kingdom and who's gonna build a house for the Lord. That promise, that covenant promise is the heart, I believe, of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 16. So let's turn there. We're working our way quickly through this and then we're gonna come to our main texts in Ephesians tonight, but Um, Ephesians and 1 Peter, this is like a Bible tour. I hope you guys are okay with that. But I want you to think about this. Matthew 16, I mentioned it briefly this morning, but I just want to show you how Jesus, uh, when he comes, and in, in this passage, in this context, starting around verse 13, he asks his disciples about his identity. By the way, if I move back and forth like this real quick, I'm just testing out the camera girl. She told me earlier... She would prefer that I stand still. (laughs) Bless you. Uh, uh, Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples about the word on the street. What's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? They, They give him three answers, okay, all of which are supernatural in their orientation. Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, Why are they supernatural answers? Because all those people are dead, as in buried, or gone up to heaven through a fiery chariot in Elijah's case. But everybody else is dead and gone. So at the very least, they're saying, Jesus, you're like a resurrected man. You're like someone come back from the dead. I mean, those are great, flattering responses. I mean, I don't know about you, Drew, but if someone came up to me and said, you're like a guy raised from the dead, I'd feel good about that. I'd feel like that's a compliment, but it's not what Jesus is looking for. 
He turns to Peter and asks, well, he turns to the the 12 and asks them point blank. Peter says, you are the Messiah. Uh, The word in Greek is Christos. The meaning is anointed one. It's where we get the word Christ. It just, it means the anointed one. Anointed for what? Almost certainly the reference point is anointed to rule as king. Jesus is being identified as king. Uh, the, the fulfillment of these ancient promises, including the one in 2 Samuel 7, where a son of David would have a permanent kingdom. Jesus actually agrees with Peter. And he says something to him that's very interesting. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So think about this. You know, He then changes Simon, Simon's name. He says, you are Rocky. And on this rock, I will build my church. It's a better translation than Peter, as far as I'm concerned. Because rock and rocky are kind of the same play on words that you find in the Greek text. You are Petros, on this Petra, I will build my church. So the idea is he's building something on Peter. Why Peter? Because he's a man with a revelation of Jesus' kingship. That's the foundation of church. But I want you to notice how Jesus takes the promise of 2 Samuel 7 and brings clarity to it. All right, 2 Samuel 7, I will establish his kingdom forever. He will build me a house. Matthew 16, you are king. I will build a church. Now, it's our temptation in this, in this day and age to think that by church, Jesus means a building. That would be unhelpful. The word Jesus uses means an assembly. It means, most of the time in the ancient world, it means a gathered people. It can refer to an army. It can refer to like the ruling council of a city-state. But in the Old Testament, it often refers to the gathered nation of Israel in a particular moment in time. So Jesus is king and he does have a building project going on. But it's not another temple made out of brick and mortar. What he's going to build, what he's going to construct is a people. That's the project. That's the house. That's the temple of the Lord that was promised as a dwelling place for, the, for God Almighty. You know, when, when uh, we think about the story of Scripture, and I think, you know, Drew referred to this earlier, that ultimately it's, it's the presence of God in the midst of his people. That is the main theme running through the entirety of Scripture, and that is the way the story ends in Revelation chapter 21. I don't know if you guys have read that recently, But the the entire point of Revelation 21 is summed up in a verse that says, now the dwelling place of God is among people. Like the whole vision of Revelation 21 is wild. There's this city, right, made of, it's like a cube, and it's made up of gold and incredible foundations. There's massive gates. The the streets are this and that. But guys, the, the city itself is a metaphor. The city is a picture of something else. It's not an actual, the, in Revelation 21 verse nine tells you this because it, it talks about the city here descending from heaven to earth and John said, and an angel tells him, come, let me show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The city is a metaphor. The city is, is, is meant to be a glorious image of the people to whom Jesus is going to be wed. So if you read that carefully, the city itself isn't even the issue. Its glory is the issue, and the fact that it's going to be the dwelling place of God is the issue. It's the people. 
And the people are formed in a, in a way that, that reflects the brilliance of God's glory and goodness. But they are ultimately the target. God could have had any city he wanted. He could have built planets for himself. Are you guys aware of this? Any NASA people in the room? I mean, this is a university town. Anybody follow this? Do you know what the most recent estimation based on the Hubble Deep Space Telescope, the number of galaxies that exist in the known universe? Anybody up on this? Anybody want to guess how many galaxies? Not stars. Galaxies. The most recent estimate, two trillion. Galaxies. What that means is that for every human being that exists on the planet Earth, there are 250 galaxies out there somewhere. I don't even know what to say about that. What is it that we think we know? Is my first response. 250 galaxies for every person. I mean, that's, I don't know how many stars that is, but it's multiple trillions of stars. Two trillion galaxies are out there, the least we can tell. So think about this, right? I mean, God could have fashioned any, anything, any Milky Way construct, any black hole, deep space, whatever you call supernova, this and that. He could have dwelled in the midst of whatever cosmic configuration that he wanted. But guys, he, was, he had no interest in that. He had an ultimate strategy, and that was to craft for himself a people and then take up residence there forever. He wants to dwell in the midst of us. But he's not gonna do that until we are what he's looking for. He's not going to move into a partially finished house. Anybody in the room buy a fixer-upper? Huh, a few people? Did you move in while you were doing the fixing? How was that, fun? (laughs) He said horrible. God's not in the business of moving into something that's not finished. He's gonna do, he's he's going to perfect the work. That's Philippians 1.6, right? He who started a work among you, it's plural, will be faithful to complete it, even to the day of Jesus Christ. There is something he will finish. There is a work that he will finish. And then he will come and take residence. And then there will be never another day for the rest of history, for the rest of forever in time where we will not know what it's like to be in the bright, brilliant presence of God. We'll see him with our eyes. You know, we will no longer walk by faith. We'll walk by sight then. Because faith will become sight. Come on, somebody. We're, we're, we're living into a reality that will cause us to look back on these days and say, remember that day? Remember that day in Ames we were talking about this? Can you believe it? It's real. And the, the presence and glory of God is gonna saturate our reality. It's going to transform everything, including us. We're gonna get refashioned bodies according to the power of the Spirit. And we're not going to know what it's like to feel absence anymore. This is one of the things that we can give God now that, that we won't be able to give him them. And that's worship in the, in the context of feeling absence. He's never absent, but sometimes we feel like he is. And in those moments, we can offer him something that for the rest of forever we'll never offer again. I want you to remember that. Because sometimes we go through hard things. 
It's difficult, challenges come, pain, a lot of questions, people making decisions that hurt others. And we don't quite understand, God, why are you letting this happen? And there's a lot of weight that we bear in those moments, but those moments are the ones built, for the Lord, built by the Lord for us to invest in forever by choosing worship, by choosing faith, by choosing love in the midst of our questions. Anyway, back to Matthew 16. The, the house is a people. That's what Jesus is building. And we know that. Because when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem at the end of his life, he went to the temple. And he kind of pronounced a judgment on it. I don't know if you remember this. First, he looked at the fig tree, and the fig tree wasn't bearing fruit, and so he cursed it. And then he went to the temple, and the temple wasn't bearing fruit, so he cleaned it out. Then he went back to the fig tree, and it was all withered and dead. And Jesus said, God demands fruit when he wants fruit. It's basically his point. And that, that temple was not bearing the fruit that God had intended. In John chapter two, Jesus refers to his own body as the temple. I don't know if you remember this. He, they said, you know, they're asking him, well, you know, what's, what's the evidence that you have the authority to do these things? And he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They said, it took 37 years to build this thing. He said, but John tells us he wasn't talking about the house that was made with brick and stone. He was talking about his body. He himself became the location of God's glory and presence. He became that temple. He forgave sins outside of that temple. He, he restored people to right relationship with God outside of that sacrificial system. And he never ever pointed any of his disciples back to it for those purposes. So it shows you something. Jesus came, he's David's heir, he's fulfilling the promise, but he's not building a physical habitation. He's constructing a different kind of house a different kind of dwelling place, and that is a community, a social reality is what he's building. He's building a citizenship, he's, he's building a, a, a human community in which he wants to rest and dwell. But I want you to understand something, he's not gonna do it without you because he has a particular strategy for building that involves you and me. I, I don't know why he decided to do it like this, because if it were me, I would have just handled it myself. Because I, I had up to here with people, you know what I'm saying? Like I would have been like, we're not gonna depend on them. You know what I mean? The whole history of the Old Testament would have told you, now don't trust the people. You know what I mean? It's all these problems and failures and disappointments. If it were me, I'd have been like, you know what I'm gonna do? Angels are gonna build my house. We're gonna get it straight. We're gonna get it right the first time. We're not gonna mess around with these people anymore. But you know the thing about God is that he's stubborn. If he makes a plan, he's not changing it. And there is no plan B. He made people and so he's gonna use people to build people. There's a scripture passage that has been really important to me over the last several years, and I just want to throw it out there before turning to Ephesians, and that's Psalm 127. <clears throat> Excuse me. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they who build it labor in vain. 
Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. It doesn't say Selah, but you know, you kind of want to say something there like amen or whatever. We don't, we don't really know what Selah means. We think it's a musical term. We think it might refer to a rest or something like that. But I always thought it would be funny like if we found out from some ancient translation that Selah means something like a loud gong or clanging cymbal. And then all the people that lamed their kids Selah would be like, oh, I, that's not kind of what we had in mind. But no offense. No offense if anybody did in the room. But this psalm kind of bugged me for a while. And I was like, what? Did? Because it seems to switch topics right in the middle, right? I mean, the whole first half, building and city and watching and defense. And then it's like, children are heritage from the Lord. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with the first part. I think it does though. But first, pay attention to this. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Well, I thought the Lord was building the house. Which is it? Uh, it's both. It's both and. Because the Lord builds through, through his people. He doesn't do an end around humanity. He, he actually is committed. He is so stubbornly committed to you and me. And that, that is the mystery of, of mercy. That is the mystery of grace. Where in spite of the ways, the many ways that we failed the Lord, the many ways that we've been selfish and stubborn and proud and arrogant, the many ways that we have done things that don't please him and disappoint him, he is still unwilling to pursue this project without us. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So people gotta still labor. People still gotta labor. But the way they labor has to be as if the Lord were building through them. You see that? Same thing with watching over the city. Somebody's gotta watch over the city, but God's gotta be the one watching through them over the city, which means their mind and heart has to be in alignment with God's. Then the thing can be built properly. If you have the blueprint from heaven, you can build it right. If you have the strategy for watching out, you can do it well. But all those things have to come from God. Now, this is where it gets interesting for me. It's like, if you build, if you watch in the way that God tells you, then all of a sudden, you know, children are a heritage from the Lord. It's like, what's that all about? I, I was like, this is crazy. Why, why the switch? Here's what I think. I think the issue is that, man, if we build the Lord's house, he'll build ours. In other words, he'll, bear, he'll build a household for us in the sense of people that come from us. And, I, and you can take that naturally, but you can also take it in a spiritual sense. Man, if we tend to the issues of heaven, if we, if we care about God's house, he'll build a heritage for us. There will be people that come from us that, that become a legacy for his name. We don't have to build that. He'll handle it. Our responsibility is to build his house. It's like the, the book of, um, of uh, Haggai. I don't know if you've, you probably did your devotions from there this morning. It's a very popular book, Old Testament prophet Haggai. 
sometimes pronounced Haggai, depending on where you're from. But Haggai, the prophet, says, don't you guys get it? You're, you're paneling your own houses, but God's house is sitting there in ruins. And you wonder why things aren't working out for you. You keep on making more money and putting in your pocket, but your pocket has a hole in it. It just falls right out and you don't accumulate anything. Don't you understand? You know, your first allegiance, your first loyalty is to God's house. If his house is in tatters, in ruins, you don't go putting a second, you know, story on your house, put nice ivory in the bathroom and all this, you know, Whatever, look, God's, it's God, and his house is in, is in ruins. Do you think somehow he doesn't notice that? It's a powerful book, man, and it is a book that can speak to our reality in our generation. Because if we look around, if we're honest, God's house is, in, is, is badly divided. God's people are badly divided. They're confused. They have misordered priorities. There's... There's all kinds of tension. And we're just carrying on. And we're just doing our thing. And, and then we wonder why we're never satisfied. It's never enough. If I could just get one more degree. If I could just get one more pay increase. If I, if I could just get one more bump up the corporate ladder. If I could just get one more, man, if we could just move to this neighborhood, if I could get my kids into this school, we have all these things. We're going, we're running after that. We're exhausting ourselves, thinking, man, just one more thing, and we'll be, it'll be, we'll be, but we never are. It's a trick. It's, it's all a giant setup for disappointment. But you know what? If we would build the Lord's house his way, he would take care of us. I mean, that's just his promise. So Psalm 127 points to an underlying reality in God's way. And that is he's not doing it without us. He could, he could have snapped his fingers and had a people for himself. All set. He could have created a bunch of robots it just would have done exactly what he said, giving him worship all the time. We praise you, the Lord of the universe. You know, I mean, he could have, he could have done that. Emotionless, uncompromised, unchanging beings, he could have made that. But he didn't do that. He made us. For better or for worse, he made us. With our emotions and our thoughts and our ideas and all this stuff that many times we think, man, we're like, why doesn't God just consult me? You know, we're going through these problems and we're shaking our fist at heaven like, what are you doing up there? Don't you know what I'm dealing with down here? You know, we, we, it's as if we think he doesn't know. And we have this slight little thing in our minds. Well, if, if, if God would ask me, I'd tell him what to do. I'm sure you would. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, this, where's the fear of God? We don't have it. We're like, no, I know what, I'll tell you what I'd do. You know, this is a situation. But he is dedicated to working with us. But guys, it has to be clear who's in charge around here. He's really not looking for opinions. He's really not looking for advice. He's got a plan. The, the question is, are we ready to embrace it? Yeah? 
So the king builds a house, the house is people. The way the people get built is through the other people. Okay? Now, that's the backdrop to this passage in Ephesians 4. Now, I just want you to turn there. What, what time are we done? 11? Okay. Just kidding. A couple of people were like, I saw one guy, I was like, honey, what? No, I'm just kidding. Ephesians 4, now look, Ephesians is a master document. It's, it's unbelievable. It is in, it's majestic. It is, and I feel like I've, I've spent more time in Ephesians in the last 15 years than any other biblical book because there's something here that captures the eternal purpose of God and, and should really wire us in a different way to see reality as God sees it. The first three chapters are just incredible. They're phenomenal. They, they tell in, in narrative fashion kind of what God is doing in big picture terms. You know, chapter, chapter one is about being filled with wisdom and revelation in order to see the hope of our calling, the, the wealth of God's inheritance among the saints and the power of God, which is for us who believe. Chapter two talks about how that translates to people on an individual level receiving grace coming alive from the dead. People who were enslaved and, and, and defined by transgressions, being set free and being recreated by the power of God for good works. It's, it's powerful. And then in verse 11, it launches into this social reality where God is not just saving individual people, he's actually fashioning a nation out of people from different ethnic backgrounds. Jews and Gentiles were Paul's main concern. I mean, for ancient Judaism, if you were, you were Jewish and there was everybody else. And there was a great chasm in the midst there. He says a, a, a wall of separation, a dividing wall. But God tore it down in the death of Jesus. His blood made it possible for people from every nation and every tongue under heaven to be, to be formed into a single human family. A new one new humanity, Ephesians 2.15 says. That's a cosmic endeavor. That, that's not something that is just, you know, some human project. That's a, that's, that is an impossibility. God recreating the human race through the cross of Jesus. And then fashioning that new people into, he says, a house, a temple, a holy temple in the Lord, the dwelling place of God in the spirit. And then in chapter three, he talks about his apostolic calling to try to explain this to the nations. That he has this grace from God to articulate this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with believing Jews in God's household. It's an international family that's burning in God's heart. And it's happening through the announcement of the gospel and by the power of the spirit, so much so that through the church, Paul says in Ephesians 3.10, the manifold wisdom of God is being put on display before powers in the cosmos. They're watching us. These, these heavenly powers, these cosmic powers, good and evil, they're watching us, looking for the divine wisdom that is supposed to be on display among us. It's extraordinary. And Paul prays then at the end of chapter three, he, says, he prays for power to host the Lord. 
I don't know if you ever picked up on this, but chapter three says uh, in verse 16 here that, that the Lord may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. I don't know that we get that, but I, I just want to tell you something. If you're going to really host Christ, you better be strengthened with power because it's going to take that to be a host for the presence of God. This is, so, I mean, this is an entire sweeping explanation of God's master plan. Chapter 3, verse 11, God's eternal purpose. And then in chapter 4, Paul starts to explain, okay, now in light of all of that, here's how you live. And I'm always struck by this, chapter four, verse one. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, the calling to which they've been called is what he's just explained for three chapters. And he's saying, now you gotta live up to that. And I've always thought to myself, good luck. I mean, how can you possibly? But he starts to explain how you can possibly. You know, and that starts with a description of unity in the beginning of chapter four. You have this whole statement, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, through all, in all. Look, our solidarity has to be the foundation on which we build. Our unity, which is not uniformity, it's unity. Uniformity is where everyone looks and acts and says exactly the same thing. That's not what we're doing here. Unity demands a kind of diversity. There has to be distinction in order for unity to be a meaningful term. Unity means there are differences, but there's something that overcomes the differences, and that's our union with Christ and our union with each other. So we gotta learn how to do that. And then in addition to the unity, there's this beautiful diversity which he starts talking about in verse seven. He says, we're one, 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 one. And then verse seven, he says, now to each one, grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he starts to talk about the different ways that grace is apportioned to the the people of God. He starts out with talking about these five groups, the the apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And he says, look, God gave them, Christ gave them to the church when he ascended. Jesus dies, he's buried, he's raised from the dead, and then 40 days later, he ascends to the right hand of God. He does two things upon ascending. The first thing is to pour out his spirit on all flesh, Acts chapter two. The second thing is to identify people that he will give as gifts to the church and commission them to do work. These are not just titles, they're not job descriptions, they're actually people. Apostles are people sent by the Lord to proclaim the gospel, to establish and plant people in the midst of cities and neighborhoods and regions, to to articulate and represent the person of Jesus. Prophets are people who have a responsibility to convey the mind and heart of God for the benefit of the saints, to orient them to what God wants and thinks and and is saying about specific situations. Evangelists are people who announce that Jesus is king and they they open up new ways, new places for the gospel. They're like groundbreakers. 
who come in and take on the gates of darkness and say, not today, Satan, literally, in whatever the place is that God sends them. There's shepherds who are people who invest their lives in caring for the hearts and souls of others. They become something so that they can bring folks along into maturity. There are teachers who articulate the testimony of the gospel and the scriptures to help people understand the truth about what God is doing and saying. These are people that God anoints and calls and releases for the benefit of others. But eventually, if those five groups are doing their job, everybody starts doing their job. Because if you follow the passage to the end, it says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry or service, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is our destiny. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by, every, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking in the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And if you, if you could design a product like this, you'd become a billionaire. A house that builds itself. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, can you imagine that? You know, $253,000, I'll sell you right now, a house that'll build itself. You're like, Really? Can you imagine that? Somebody coming, dropping it off on your plot of land that you just bought. There's the house. It's going to build itself. Watch this. I mean, that would be wild. But God actually has a plan for that to happen. Because the house is a people, remember? Here it's referred to as a body, which I think is Paul's way of connecting the language of house with the organic reality of people. Paul kind of is really loose with his metaphors because you don't build a body. A body grows, right? But Paul says the body builds itself, which is weird. But, but it only makes sense if the body is the house. The people are the house. It's or, the house is an organic thing. It's living. So it constructs itself. So the five groups have to do their job, but when they're doing their job, then every part is working. Every part is a builder in the kingdom. Every member of Christ's church is also a constructor, right? A builder. And that means there's not a single person in this room. If you're in Jesus Christ, you've got a job to do. You've got work to do. If you're in Jesus Christ, you're a builder. You have resources and you have the capacity to make other people stronger because of who you are and what you carry in God. It's not the kingdom of God's vision for a few people to stand behind a pulpit and build and everybody else just sits around putting the money in the plate and giving them a handshake on the way out the door. That's not the kingdom of God. That might be religion as we know it, but it's not the kingdom. 
The kingdom is where, I mean, you might have people standing behind a pulpit, but what they're doing in the end is enabling people all across a community to build. Because not a single person standing behind a pulpit who can fulfill the plan of God. It requires that every single part do its work. And then, then the body can build itself up in love. So there is, there's nobody who's on the bench here to use an athletic metaphor for the football fans out there. Every, can you imagine this? If every football player were on the field, you have like 150 guys out there. And it's gonna be mass chaos unless somebody has a blueprint and helps the people understand, okay, this is what we're doing. This is how we're building. But then when you have the blueprint, everybody can build. Everybody's in the game. No spectators. We, we only have participants in God's kingdom. We don't have people who sit on the sideline. The body has to build itself up in love. Each part has to do its own work. Last passage I want to look at, and then we're going to spend some time before the Lord together. Well, last book. I want you to turn to 1 Peter. The house is a people, guys. People are built by other people with resources that God gives them. Does God reveal himself to people? Of course. Are, are there moments of, of, of revelation when you just have an encounter with God? Absolutely. But over time, you and I need each other if we're gonna do this right. Okay, God isn't just building me as an individual. He's building us. And therefore, what he does in my life is probably not just for me. We're not consumers here. We're people who bring something to the table because we have power and we have divine resources. We are recipients of grace and we have a responsibility with that. Come on, Spider-Man fans, right? With great power. I mean, I've seen it with three different Aunt May and Uncle Ben's. You know, whoever's saying it, I always forget. If it's Uncle Ben, three different Uncle Ben's. With great power comes great responsibility, Peter. Yeah, okay. But guys, that's like a Bible truth right there, actually. You know, I don't know the Spider-Man lore and all that, but I'm just telling you, like that concept is straight up gospel. It's straight up kingdom. Right, now I'm not advocating for Spider-Man. I'm just telling you, like, look, with great power comes great responsibility. With grace comes stewardship. Yeah, yeah. I just want you to check this out. First Peter chapter two, verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's your house priesthood sacrifice, all in one verse. We're the house, we're the priests, we're the sacrifices. Just like Jesus, it's crazy. But that spiritual house construction language is the way Peter is, is call, he's summarizing several Old Testament passages here in order to illustrate that what Jesus began, we continue. He is the cornerstone. It's a great hymn and a great modern take on the hymn from Isaiah 28. He is that, and he's also rejected by some, and so we stand in that same place. We're founded, we're built on him, 
and we experience the same kind of, at times, marginalization and rejection, but we are spiritual stones because the house is alive. Okay, it's, it's not just a temple made of brick and mortar. It's a dwelling place for God made up of people, living stones being fashioned together. Now go over two chapters to 1 Peter 4. This is a great paragraph, by the way. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. It starts off, the end of all things is near. <laughs> you got anybody in your life who is kind of like an end times person? Maybe you are, maybe you are. It's okay. We can admit it. There's no shame. But I want to tell you something. The Bible says in this passage, the end of all things is near. This was 2,000 years ago. I'm telling you, the end of all things is still near. But I want you to hear the counsel of the Apostle Peter, who says the end of all things is near. He doesn't say go to Idaho, live in a cave, store up rice and water. He doesn't say that, he says something else. He says the end of all things is near, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you can pray. Above all, keeping, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And now look at this. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. There's nobody who is on the sidelines in the kingdom of God. Everyone in the kingdom receives grace. What does that mean? It means you have a resource somehow from heaven. The, the word the word gift Peter uses here in Ephesians 4, verse 10, is the same one that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. It's charisma. It means a grace thing. And Paul says, there are many of these grace things. They're diverse. There's like prophecy and there's speaking in tongues and there's words of exhortation. There's a word of wisdom. There's a... There's a the word of knowledge, there's healings, there's workings of power or miracles. There's all kind of, there's three different lists in 1 Corinthians 12 alone. There's a list in Romans 12. There's a list in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 14. These, what, are, what is Paul doing? He's responding to the reality of God working in the midst of people. And he's saying, man, there's all kind of, God empowers you to do things and to say things. But you are responsible for what you've been given. You're a steward. What's a steward? A steward is someone who's been delegated to be responsible for the thing that belongs to somebody else. The grace is God's. But guess what? He gave you grace. And now you're a steward. Now you're a manager of God's grace. That'll put your job at, you know, Krispy Kreme in a different light. You, you're a manager? You're a manager. I'm a manager. What do you manage? I manage the grace of God. Oh, really? You bet. 
Man, every time I, I speak a, a prophetic word to, a, to someone to help them understand the mind and, mind and heart of God, I'm stewarding the grace of God. Every time I bring a word of encouragement to somebody who's down, I am a manager of grace right now. I'm distributing it on behalf of the Lord for the benefit of somebody else. Every time I lay my hands on a, a brother or sister and there's a, a, a manifestation of healing through prayer, I'm a manager, I'm a steward of grace. I don't own it, it's not mine, it belongs to him, but he entrusted me with a responsibility. Not so I could get a platform, not so I could get my name up in lights, not so I could have a website and a 501c3, but so I could build. What God's looking for is a build, a, a people who know how to build because they know how to steward the resources God gives you. I have nothing against physical buildings. Nothing again. I mean, it's a great worship space, but it's not the primary interest of the Lord. His primary interest is the construction of a people. And in that game plan, everyone's involved. Would you stand with me tonight? I know the kids are coming up and they're very welcome to come in whenever they want to come in. But guys, I want to encourage you tonight. I feel like we have to get ourselves sorted. And we have to get ourselves ready to build tonight. Like if anybody has an excuse, if anybody has an explanation for why they shouldn't be involved in this project, I believe it's got to be dealt with. People who sideline themselves, pull, you pull yourself out of the game because you don't think you're worthy. You sit down on the bench because you think it's somebody else's job. You, you move yourself off to the side because you don't think you have one of those gifts that matter. Guys, we gotta repent tonight. And by repent, I don't just mean apologize. By repent, I mean we need to reorient our minds and hearts around the agenda of God. Which is that this, look, if you're in the kingdom, then you have a resource, you have grace, and you gotta steward it now. Because the church must build itself up in love. Yes, do we need leaders? Yes, we need leaders. We need people who help us articulate the vision and line us up and, and equip us and get us ready. But they're not here to do the work for us. They're here to mobilize us so that every one of us does the work that we're called to do. So I wanna spend a, a few moments tonight just before God. Just ask, just ask him tonight, is there anything in the way of, you, of your work in the kingdom as a builder? Is there any lie that you've believed? Oh, I don't qualify. Oh, I can't do that. I, I can't help other people. I can't speak. I can't serve. I can't this and that. Tonight, that, all those things have to be buried along with Jesus in a tomb. They, they have to be buried. They're not right. They're lies. They're deceptive. And they neutralize the power and the authority of the Lord that he's seeking to demonstrate in and through your life. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.